The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about the outlook for healthcare stocks, COVID treatments, and vaccines. My guest is Josh Nathan Kazis, Barron's Healthcare Reporter. Welcome, Josh. It's great to be back with you on Barron's Live. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So it seems, just looking around New York, where I live, that people are a lot less worried about COVID these days, fewer masks, that kind of thing. Is that backed up by the trends you're seeing? Yeah, look, I mean, we're in a period in the U.S. where case counts are relatively low and they're trending downwards. Cases are down, uh, it's about 23% nationwide over the past two weeks. Hospitalizations are down 11%. And people in ICUs, which I think is probably the most important number, down 12%. And, and well, sorry, I guess, I, I guess deaths are the most important number. Th- those are down 8%, averaging under 400 um, per day, which, you know, is a reminder that that's still a lot of people. And that is a lot of people. Um, and I guess, I mean, I, what, what I keep coming back to, though, is that, you know, we're coming through the summer period where we would expect these numbers to be falling. Um, but we're also starting to see some issues in some of the colder states that would suggest that maybe things won't be this good uh, come wintertime. Yeah, I mean, and look, as, as we've said before, predictions uh, with this pandemic are um, hard to make and maybe a good idea to stay away from. But what we can say is that the states that are currently seeing the biggest increases in hospitalizations are northern states where it's getting colder. So uh, these these numbers are a couple of days old, but in Maine they're they're up 29 percent over the past two weeks. They're up similar amount in Montana, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, um, and it's also worth noting that there's increases in northern Europe. Uh, France and Germany have seen increases in cases in the past few weeks. So you know there there is certainly um, a sign for those looking for it that places where it's getting colder are already seeing cases going up, and I think that's what public health authorities have been worried about as we've gone through this relatively mild period of the past few months. Um, and yet we have these new vaccine boosters. Right. And and these these boosters are, um, uh, you know, I think the a major drive for getting these boosters out when the U.S. Uh, public health authorities did was concern over the possibility of a late fall and winter wave. And so now they've been out for just over a month now. Um, you know, I think some good news is People will recall that these boosters, the Moderna and Pfizer booster that were recently authorized, are specifically designed to target the BA4 and BA5 strains. And this happened. They, they, they targeted BA4 and BA5 after the companies had prepared earlier versions that targeted BA2, um, uh, BA1, 2. <laughs> it's been a while. But, but an, earlier, yeah, an earlier strain. Um, and, and, and the FDA and, and its advisors said, no, you know, that strain will not be dominant by the time you actually get this out. We want you to have BA4 or BA5 specific strains, uh, vaccines, because that's a strain that is more likely to be dominant when these actually are are rolling off the, sh- the production lines and getting into people's arms. Um, I think there was a concern given how fast the virus was mutating over the summer and how quickly 
you know, one strain, one of the Omicron descendants was, was overtaking the next Omicron descendant as the dominant strain in the U.S., that by the time we were all getting inoculated against BA5 or BA4, that strain would be gone. But in fact, it's not. Um, BA5 now um, remains the dominant variant in the U.S. The CDC estimates it accounted for 81% of cases last week in this country. There are other variants gaining ground. There's one called BA4.6, which the UK health authorities say has a slight fitness advantage over BA5. But I think for, for all intents and purposes, the vast majority of cases now are still caused by BA5, which which at least for the time being means that the bivalent boosters are, are probably a good match. Um, you know, I think we'll learn over the next months like how how important that was. Um, but for now, it seems like a good thing. You know, I, just thinking about variants, if you, if you read articles about what um, and, and listen to the World Health Organization about what the next, you know, threatening variant is going to be, it's, 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 it's atomized. There's tons of variants being tracked right now. There's no one clear threat as there had been at previous points. Interesting. Um, and, you know, so knowing that this, uh, that the, uh, the booster works, um, should work on uh, the dominant variant, how, how's that rollout going? So uh, according to the latest CDC data, 7.6 million people have received an updated, updated bivalent booster since the rollout began a month ago. Uh, just to give you a sense of scale, the U.S. bought 171 million doses. <laughs> um <laughs> And the, there are, and again, the, it's only been a month. Uh, not all those doses are ready yet. But I think this uptake is a little bit disappointing. Um, about 20 million odd doses have been delivered to states. Um, about 215 million people are eligible for this booster based on their age. Um, that doesn't take into account people who have had COVID recently, so that the actual eligibility number is probably a bit lower than that. But you could still ballpark the uptake at around 2%, 3%, um, which um, leaves leaves much to be desired. Yeah. I saw Dr. Fauci was on uh, Colbert the other night getting his booster um, on television. So I guess there's an ongoing effort to get people aware of the availability of these boosters and the, um, you know, the, the advice from public health authorities that people who are eligible for them go out and get them. And right now it's eligible for 12 and up, but... Um... I gather Pfizer is trying to um, get it approved for children younger than that. Yeah. Um, uh, five to 11 year olds are currently eligible for a original booster. Um, mm -hmm. But now Pfizer has asked for, um, for an authorization for them to be eligible for this updated booster. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly how long that'll take or how the regulatory pathway may differ than it was for adults. Um, or, uh, you know, when Moderna might ask for the same thing, but mm -hmm. just, just sort of, it's worth noting that, um, that's something that companies now ask for. Okay. Um, now, unlike the last couple of years, though, there's there's a lot going in going on in healthcare beyond COVID. Um, let, let's start with Alzheimer's treatment, lecanemab, uh, which uh, that that sent Biogen stocks soaring last week. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. So this is something uh, we've spoken about a lot uh, on this call. I, I believe we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago when I was last on here. Um, you know, I. I Alzheimer's has been, you know, is a major public health problem, of course, affects millions of people and, and progress has been very slow. Last time we talked about this, we talked about how uh, Biogen and its partner, ISI, have a second crack at, at um, an Alzheimer's drug that was 
uh, due to release to, to produce, or they had, they had a trial on it that was due to produce data um, just last week. Uh, and their, their previous drug, Agihelm, very famously was approved just over a year ago, but then uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services decided that Medicare would not pay for it. Um, so that drug has effectively been more or less pulled from the market. Biogen is not um, trying to commercialize it anymore. And, you know, I think when we spoke, my, my, my best guess was that lecanemab would not work. It's a, it's a very similar drug to Agihelm, um, has some differences that we can talk about, but they both, um, you know, target these so-called uh, beta amyloid plaques that are hypothesized to um, have an, a role in, in causing Alzheimer's. The big surprise was that lecanemab seemed to work to some degree. It, it slowed cognitive decline after 18 months by 27%. The, the, the experts we'd spoken to beforehand said that 35% would have been a real home run, but anything over 25% counts as a win. So 27% is definitely in that win category. It seems like good news for patients and very good news for Biogen and ISA. Um, and so you mentioned the beta amyloid hypothesis. Um, and, and, and after Adjuhelm, it seemed like that hypothesis might be dead, but now it, it, it seems to have uh, some new life. Um, is it really that good news? Yeah, I mean, look, so this is this is the sort of underlying theory that there's a connection between these amyloid plaques in the brain and cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and there's been, you know, one failure after another of clinical trials of drugs that are able to clear amyloid plaques, but unable to convincingly demonstrate a cognitive benefit. But um, lecanemab uh, does seem to have demonstrated a cognitive benefit. So, you know, importantly, Eli Lilly and Roche both have ongoing phase three trials of similar um, antibody drugs. Um, uh, Roche's will produce data later this year, uh, Lilly's next year. Um, and these are all potential major drugs uh, if, if they are positive. I think that the, the odds that they work probably increased since the lecanemab data came out positive. Um, it sort of bolsters the underlying theory behind them. Now, these are all different drugs. They all target the plaque slightly differently and have different profiles. Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that this one works suggests that the others might work as well. So, yeah, when I mean, I'd, I'd love to go into a little more detail on the differences between lecanemab and Adjuhelm, because when I first saw that this drug did as well as it did the new one. Um, my my first thought was, well, did they just design a better test this time, or is there really a difference between the drugs that could explain kind of the different um, uh, the, the different levels of success? Well, there's a couple of things to say. Number one, we should be very clear that um, Biogen and ISA have not yet put out the full results of this trial. Um, they put out top line data, but the full results are not likely to come. Um, or I'm sorry, will come uh, at a scientific conference next month. Okay. Um, but at this point, I think there's a couple of things we can say. One, these are these are different drugs, and they and they have slightly different targets in the brain. You know, they're they're each monoclonal antibodies um, that that attack the plaque, but they do it in slightly different ways. The details of this, I'm not sure it's worth getting into, but it's just justifies to say they 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 try to accomplish the same thing slightly differently. It may be that one approach is better than the other. As you say, it may have something to do with trial design. It's also worth pointing out that um, lecanemabs, uh, among all of these monoclonal antibodies that uh, from 
uh, I say, Bajin, Lily, and um, Roche, they seem to have one of the best um, side effect profiles. There's a broad category of side effects known as um, aria. Um, it effectively means brain swelling, but it's it's not a great thing, and it happens in a non-trivial number of patients who receive these drugs. But the lecanemab has generally has a, a better, um, fewer patients uh, experience aria than 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 Algerhelm, for example. So that's one important difference uh, between this one and the others. Uh, it doesn't directly answer your question, but but that is um, that will come into play as phase three data becomes available on all of these drugs. And, and if more than one of them work uh, and more than one of them are able to get approved by the FDA and, and you know, um, CMS agrees to cover more than one of them, you know, things like the side effect profile are going to become very important. Yeah, I mean, it was it was that side effect profile in part that uh, kind of undermined Adjohm, right? That uh, you weren't getting enough uh, improvement for the risks that you were taking. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple effects. of issues with with Adjohm. You know, the, Biogen ran two trials of two phase three trials of Adjohm um, initially uh, outside uh, uh, advisors or outside monitors suspended both the trials because they thought that it didn't or ended both the trials because it looked like they were failing. And then a, a post-hoc analysis found that while one of the two phase three trials had not shown any clinical benefit, the other one did show clinical benefit in certain subgroups. Um, uh, so some of the people who looked at this data found that the sum of that evidence was not convincing. Um, but one of the issues, as you say, is that not only was the efficacy data um, not convincing to all of the experts who looked at it, but also there is this very serious uh, side effect profile that, um, you know, that put a real potential cost on, on administering the medicine. Now the FDA thought it was worth it. Um, right. CMS uh, did not. And, and that, that was ended up being decisive. And so, so what happens next? What, what were the next steps here? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, as I say, uh, ISI and Biogen are going to give full data on this next month. There, there are questions, I think, significant questions about how significant the 27% decline will be clinically, you know, in patients and whether it'll be enough to convince um, doctors to, to, to use it. You know, it, it's hard for me to sort of really grasp this, but the, the scale that they're measuring cognitive benefit on, it's a, it's a, it's a measure that takes into account things like being able to uh, sort of, sort of di different cognitive um, uh, tests, but also like functional things, like people being able to do things in the world. It's an 18 point scale. And the difference after 18 months is just about half a point on this scale uh, between the placebo group and the group that got it. Um, so it's a difference. And I think the companies will say, you know, it's a significant difference to patients um, and their families. Uh, but I think more, it will, it'll be interesting to see what the full data says. Um, and the the ISI has already asked for accelerated approval for this drug for lecanemab. The FDA is due to decide on the accelerated approval application by January 6th. Um, and then after that, I say has said that it'll ask for full approval by the end of next March, and the FDA will need to decide about that. And then CMS would likely weigh in. Right. And, and it seems like the data is uh, probably good enough for the FDA. To, um, what about the CMS? Yeah, so I, a number of the analysts who have weighed in on this have said that they think this is good enough for FDA. I, I think C CMS's benchmarks um, are a little bit unclear. The agency has said, CMS has said that, you know, full approval and convincing data would have them revisit the decision that they made about Algehelm, which 
which applies to all of these drugs, um, basically saying that they'll only cover it in the context of a clinical trial. But very good data, have they said, would, would, would make them revisit that. So um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the benchmark for very good data is, um, but uh, likely we will find out uh, over the next, uh, next year or so. And, and Biogen itself has really been in flux. Um, you know, they, they don't have a CEO. Uh, they're looking for one. What does this mean now for, for the company? Well, first of all, the stock's up something like 40%, right? I mean, you know, the, 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 the issue that Biogen's facing is not only that they've had trouble with their Alzheimer's drugs, but that a lot of their other drugs are just um, commercially reaching the end of their uh, lives. You know, there, there's been a lot of competition for just about all of its major products. Um, so the company really needs something new. I think if the Lacanumab trial hadn't worked, the company would be in a position where they would be thinking about, you know, selling off divisions, potentially major structural changes or very aggressive M&A. They need to do something. Um, but this changes it. So the company's CEO or had announced that its CEO will depart once they pick a new one. And I imagine that now that they have this positive Lacanumab data and the possibility of of a really um, uh, major blockbuster that they could they would share with ISI um, if this drug really does make it all the way through, um, you know, it sort of changed the landscape of who they might hire for a CEO and the, potentially the future of the of the business. Um, okay, well, let's move on then to um, another drug that has been in the news, and this one is for what used to be known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah, now we talk about it as ALS. I mean, this is a you know, real horrible, horrible, another horrible neurological disease with no cure and where progress has been slow, very similar to Alzheimer's. It's an area of huge unmet need. Now, th this company, um, Amelix, uh, that, that we're talking about here, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. These two college friends at Brown have had an idea to combine two drugs that were approved for other things uh, into a combination treatment for ALS. So they founded a company, they got it funded, they ran some trials, and now the drug is 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 approved. Um, and, and so the, the the story of how you know of, of the sort of the sort of regulatory history here is is very strange. That in in April of 2021, the company had run one phase two trial of this drug, and they said the FDA wants us to run a phase three trial. And then in September of that year, they said in fact the FDA wants us to submit for approval based just on our completed phase two trial and, and without waiting for the phase three trial to be done. So the company IPO'd in January of 2022. So why the rush? Well, look, I mean, there's a huge amount of unmet need in ALS. I mean, this is a really horrible condition. It's also a condition that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years. I don't know if you recall the ice bucket challenge, but that was about raising money for ALS. Um, the Biden administration has highlighted ALS as a priority. And, you know, ALS patient advocates have been, I think, very vocal in calling for quick approval of this drug. Um, is the science conclusive after just the one trial? Well, the FDA's outside advisors, the, their advisory committee had a meeting in March of this year to consider that. And they voted no, narrowly voted no, saying that it had not been shown to be effective. The FDA staff in their comments at that meeting had some concerns about the data. Um, but then... Sometime later, Emelik said it had new analyses of, of the available, uh, new analyses ready of the phase two data. The FDA had a second meeting of its advisors. And that meeting was very interesting. That there's a, uh, the head of the FDA's Office of Neuroscience, his name is Dr. Billy Dunn, 
he's come up a lot in the context of the Alzheimer's debate as well. Um, he made a speech in which he very clearly highlighted the FDA's legal authority to be flexible in cases of serious diseases with high unmet need, uh, flexible from a regulatory perspective. And there's a very unusual exchange at the end of the meeting, actually sorry, at the beginning of the meeting, where he said to Amelix, will you move, pull your, I mean, during his speech, he said, I, I invite, I mean, I'm not quoting directly, but something like I invite the company to say, if if their phase three trial is negative, it, if it shows it doesn't work, will you pull the drug from the market if we approve it now on the basis of the phase two trial? Um, and one of the co-CEOs effectively said yes. Um, so that advisory meeting ended with a narrow vote or seven to two vote in favor of approval. And the FDA last week approved the drug. Um, which is, I mean, I always think of the FDA wanting to have a higher bar than that. Um, I'm not sure you have an answer to any of this, but it, 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 to me, it just seems very interesting that they would, um, that it would knowingly approve a drug that, you know, where they have to even get the CEO to say they'd pull it from the, from the market if the, the, the phase three doesn't work. I mean, look, I, I think that it, it highlights the, the, the willingness of the agency to be flexible in areas of high and make need where progress has been very slow and particularly in neurological diseases. You know, we've seen massive advances in recent years in areas like cancer. Um, uh, but, you know, I think especially for patients and their families, progress in these serious neurological conditions and Alzheimer's and ALS and others has been slow and, and very frustrating and heartbreaking. And um, I think the the FDA, both mm -hmm. in the Alzheimer's case and in the approval of Agilehelm and, and in this approval, show that um, you know they're willing to be flexible when um, in in these narrow situations, and I you know there's been a lot of criticism of them for that. Uh, but uh, you know you can also imagine you know listening to patients who really think this is going to help them and maybe um, you know being influenced. Okay, um, and so what has the approval meant for the stock? Yeah, the, the the stock didn't climb so much on approval. I think that it really went up uh, at, at that advisory committee meeting when it became clear that despite um, lingering questions from FDA staff, uh, you know, Dr. Dunn seemed to be making the case. I mean, he said at the meeting he had not decided, but it, I think it sounded to those of us listening that he he did want to approve this drug, uh, how it sounded to me. Um, so it, it, it traded as low as $9 earlier this year. Now it's up to $30. Um, I, I, it's important to say that the pricing that the company announced shortly after the approval has raised eyebrows. It's, they're pricing it at uh, at, at one hundred and fifty eight thousand dollars per year. Um, there's an influential drug pricing at um, an analytical group called ICER, the Institute for Clar uh, Clinical and Economic Review. They said the cost effective pricing of the drug wouldn't be higher than thirty thousand dollars per year. And you know, I think questions remain about this drug's effectiveness. Now that phase three trial is ongoing. Um, and you know, there was an investor call after the approval on the CEO. One of the CEOs was asked about that commitment to pull the drug if it's negative. And he said, to be clear, we will always do what is right for patients and right for the community. Uh, why would we keep a drug on the market that doesn't help people? So he seems to be sticking to that commitment. Um, so that might put some uncertainty on the stock. Uh, but but uh, it, it also sounds like he's created a wiggle room there that if the community still wants it, um, then maybe they keep making it. Yeah, I think you could read it in different ways. I mean, he does say, I guess, in short, why would we keep a drug on the market yeah. that doesn't help people? But you're right, they, you, you could see some rhetorical wiggle room there. Like, 
um, it depends how clear the phase three data is, I imagine. Okay. Now, Josh, you've been all over big pharma companies spinning off their consumer and generic units so that they can focus purely on new drugs. Now there's another company, Novartis, getting into the game. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, and this, they, they announced this a while ago. Um, Novartis is spinning off Sandoz, which is their uh, generic drug making unit. And this is ending uh, sort of the the end of a, um, a long uh, of a strategy that, that Sandoz is a, that Novartis adopted. They, they got rid of their eye care unit, Alcon, it's like contact lenses, um, uh, not so long ago. I spoke to the CEO about the case for the firm recently. You know, it seems like investors aren't quite there yet. They're they're trading at 12 times earnings, which is cheaper than, say, Johnson & Johnson and Eli Lilly, which trades at 37 times earnings. And their their American depository receipt is down about 13% this year. Um, you know, and, and see, the CEO, you know, acknowledged that, uh, the, that, you know, investors have concerns here. But he thinks that there are some brands that they have already on the market that can outperform expectations. And he's pretty bullish on the pipeline. You know, he, he, he argues, he makes this case for the pure play biopharma, which we've written about a lot. And he says, essentially, you know, if they get approvals in very cutting edge areas like gene therapy, you really won't have to worry about patent cliffs because um, it's not, you know, you obviously can't make a generic gene therapy, but also like biosimilars um, will, will have less of a role. So he, he thinks you can sort of maintain those revenues in a way that um, you know to, to serve the sort of balancing uh, effect that having ancillary businesses used to for a sort of conglomerate model biopharma. That's that's a really interesting concept that uh, you could have pharmaceutical companies that don't have to worry about patent cliffs. Right, that's the idea, and you know I I think they they will certainly still have to worry about patent cliffs, but once if they get into you know this sort of very cutting edge gene gene therapy stuff um i i think that the case you know you start, starts working more like a vaccine company where you you have less of a less of a concern about being copied once and, the approvals run out and and do they have uh, any drugs that uh, we should get excited about well you know he, he was really emphasizing i mean we talked a bit about the pipeline but he was emphasizing expanded opportunity for drugs on the market there's a cholesterol drug called uh i'm going to say it wrong something like like, like kivio um, an MS drug called Kisimta, he thinks there's bigger opportunities for. They also have a breast cancer drug called Kiskali, and they're they're looking forward to ex sorry they're looking to expand it into the adjuvant setting, you know, to prevent recurrences rather than just being used as a treatment. That's a potentially large indication where other drug companies have had a problem, you know, trouble. You know, Pfizer very very prominently had a, a drug they were hoping to get into the adjuvant setting, and, and the trial didn't work. Um, but uh, they are optimistic about this. They're also, you know, I think importantly and interestingly highlighting their focus on, on the U S um, you know, and that's relevant because uh, you know, the, as we wrote about in our feature on this, the pure play biopharma model is really based on these very expensive biotextile drugs. And the U S is the place where you actually, you know, get paid a lot for, for these that's the only place. drugs. Right. So, um, necessarily these these pure play biopharma companies need to focus on the us so it's i think it's an interesting um you know interesting strategic statement and it could lead us into a whole another conversation we'll save it for another day yeah um so i, I want to finish up with uh, the stock that you mentioned just a minute ago eli Lilly, which is trading at a uh, 37 times uh, pe multiple 
um, they have uh, been granted a fast track designation for a new drug. Um, is it is is this why the stock's so expensive? So this drug is it's called um, terzepatide. Uh, it's approved in diabetes under the name Manjuro, but they're trying to get approval for this drug as an obesity treatment. They have some very pro- uh, positive data on this. They're waiting for a second phase three trial to give them some more data before they apply for full approval early next year. But the fast track designation they got today from the FDA allows the process to move quicker. They can begin their rolling submission this year. I think that, you know, our, our colleague uh, Bill Alpert has written a feature on Eli Lilly's on, on this drug from Lilly and a competitor drug from Nova Nordisk. Um, there's a lot of uh, investor optimism around this drug. And, you know, the, Lilly has a number of things going for it um, that can help explain that substantially higher multiple than any of its peers by far. Um, but I think, you know, excitement over this drug is, is a big part of, of why that stock is so um, beloved by investors right now. Um, let's go on to some re- uh, reader question or listener questions. Sorry, I always forget. I'm a print journalist at heart, <laughs> um, so please forgive me. Um, so, uh, is there what's your outlook for uh, biotech M and A for the rest of 2022 and 23? Has has there been a lot of it so far, or is it pretty quiet just given what's happening in the markets? Uh, a lot of a lot of it coming from Pfizer. <laughs> There's been you know I think yesterday or two days ago Pfizer closed two deals that had been announced earlier in the year. Um, and there was some some story I saw pointing out that a substantial proportion of the biotech M and A uh, this year has been Pfizer spending its uh, COVID cash. So um, I'm, I'm you know I, I think predicting where M and A is going to go over the rest of the year is always tricky. Um, but uh, we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, so I'm not sure what's going to happen. However, I would say that uh, it is. You know, I, 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 there's a lot of money out there. Big Pharma has a lot of money. Pfizer has a lot of it, but others do too. And I think that um, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some more before the year closes up. But as you say, it's a tricky, tricky uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I see it in other areas where, you know, they look for, um, you know, people want m for certain companies and the money's just not there. Uh, well, and the, I think the question is whether, you know, biotech executives have sort of re-rated you know what i think as valuations and stock prices dropped there's a lot of trouble coming to terms between the acquirers and the acquirees because the acquirers looked at the stock prices and they had one idea about what the companies were valued at and and the and the biotech executives you know looked back two months and said well i'm not taking you know this like i was worth that you know (laughs) two months ago Um, and so i think there's a process of the biotech companies deciding whether or not their valuations are going to come back before or, or just taking the deals as they're offered. Yeah, I, I would think that um, running a biotech company that constantly needs to raise money until they get a product out there is probably a lot easier when money is free rather than when rates have gone up as much as they have. Recently. Well, that's true too. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Well, great. Uh, I think that's all the time we have today. Um, thank you, Josh, for being here. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Please join us Friday for a special edition Barron's Live featuring energy experts, experts, Dr. James Stevenson, Executive Director, Research Lead, and Andrew Blumenfeld, Data Analytics Director from McCloskey by Opus. They'll be speaking with Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren Rublin, on how Russia's cut to energy exports will impact consumers in Europe and the U.S. Thank you again for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.